Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the associate producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre. And today I am joined by the astonishing, incredible Ryan Barakovich, one of our co-artistic producers. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing good, Jill. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Today, Ryan and I will be unpacking The Merchant of Venice, which is a production happening right now in Toronto at Red Sandcastle Theatre, being put on by Real Canaan Theatre Company. Yeah, but before we kind of get into more details of the show, let's do our little cup housekeeping as per usual. So Ryan, what are you sipping on with us today? Uh, In my cup today, I have coffee with maple creamer, which is super tasty, and it's in my The Cup Cup. Hey, Cup of Hemlock. That's the show we're watching right now. How about (laughs) you? I'm also drinking coffee. It is black cinnamon coffee, so also tasty, and also in a cup cup. So yeah, look at that. Cheers. Nice. I'm also Rissa bounding, I guess, for my ensemble today. So without being too spoily, actor playing Narissa had some braids and a track jacket in this production. So I thought I'd jump on board with that theme. Great. So this one, Ryan, I think just to kind of do a heads up from the beginning, we're going to be popping our spoiler symbol probably sooner rather than later because the Merchant of Venice folks have probably run into it in some shape or form through reading it in high school or maybe seeing a production. Obviously online, there's Sparknotes, there's Wikipedia. There's no lack of figuring out what happens we, in the plot. <laughs> we at Cup of Hemlock, back when we used to be a theater yes, company, we did. did a reading of it. You played Portia, I played Antonio. Exactly. Like was, uh, if people want to watch that, there's no lack of merchant available on the internet yeah. for people to consume. Right, so I think we'll pump the brakes on the synopsis of Merchant of Venice and maybe just jump into a little bit of non-spoiler general appraisal of the production, and then we'll pop up our symbol. So, Ryan, why don't I volley it right to you to kind of start us off on what were your thoughts of this production? Okay, non-spoiler. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really fun. It's uh, not to get too deep into the stuff that we will talk about later as we go, but Because of the controversial subject matter of this play, I find people are very bashful with the material. They're afraid to make it a comedy because they feel like, ah, if you read too much into the implications, this is terrible and we hate it and we hate everything it says. So we're going to make this a somber tragedy. If you look at it from Shylock's perspective, how could it be anything but? But I like, due to some of the changes that were made that we will unpack a little further later, they really allow themselves to revel in the comedy. And there is a lot of comedy in this play. It is quite funny in a lot of ways and not funny in other ways. But I kind of felt that due to some of the creative edits and omissions that were made in this production, it allowed them to give us an experience that maybe would have been similar or akin to how Shakespeare's audience would have interpreted this as a comedy and really get to revel in that fun. Mm-hmm. I liked how we had this like this youthful energy of the cast. I don't actually know how old any of these performers are, but regardless of how old they are, and I believe there probably is variation in the ages, but the whole production just had this like young, scrappy and hungry energy that really, it was a rough around the edges production. It like, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I just felt like it, it lent itself to this small space. All the actors were really bringing their A games, the double casting, which we'll unpack a little further, really augmented a lot of the comedy and really showed off the range of a lot of these performers, many of whom are right out of theater school. And yeah, overall, I don't really have big complaints. I think this was just like a fun production. I would encourage people who like the play to come see it. I think it's a good production of the play. And I would encourage people who 
don't know how they feel about the play or have complicated feelings about the play to come see this and maybe we'll give them a different or interesting perspective on it. Yeah. How about you? Honestly, taking the words right out of my mouth, I felt the exact same way. I think I've mentioned this in several other panels too. I love when you're watching a production where it truly feels like the actors are in playground with their text and with their movements and choices. And yeah, there was this vivacity and freshness brought to Shakespearean texts. If we are just to boil it down to, you know, plot specificity aside, it was really refreshing to kind of see this iteration in this intimate small space and have actors just really chew on the text and deliver it uh, with such range of like vocal quality of character choice. And so, yeah, that's like even before we kind of tap into what The Merchant is and what Christopher Lucas, our director, says in their notes too, like what is Merchant of Venice in post-pandemic Toronto 2022? And so reading their director note kind of before jumping into the piece, like it's, that was kind of cooking in the back of my mind. And I really liked, yeah, how there was different sort of vignettes throughout the whole show that kind of brought that back to the forefront of my brain of like, oh, right, doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So I generally really loved it. And I felt like I was pleasantly surprised by, again, Ryan was saying, we're going to unpack more of the intimate staging and the double casting and the use of specific characters, et cetera. But just to kind of, without spoiling, I was always kind of sitting on the edge of my seat surprised and anticipating, you know, oh, this is probably how they're going to do that. But then they would switch it up on me kind of thing. So I just thought it was great fun. And it was one of those, again, experiences where the cast was having great fun. You could tell, and this isn't really spoiler alert too, but like in their pre-show sort of build up to the production, you kind of get to see the cast interact with each other. And that was like really neat to see too. Yeah. So I think I'm going to, I feel like I'm getting kind of into spoiler territory. So I'll just tap my. It's hard not to with this because unless we're just going to synopsize Merchant of Venice as a play about Bassanio wanting to court Portia, like we don't need to do that. The only things that are worth synopsizing, like if people who are not familiar with that content, like can find it easily and people who are, don't need to know it. Like for the purpose of understanding this production, the only things we really need to unpack are the things that are specific to what this production did differently and that requires getting into the spoiler so if people do want to go in without Mm -hmm. knowing the specifics of that just know that we both enjoyed it we had a good time if what we've described so far sounds interesting to you you have some time left to see it before the production ends yeah so i'll just also plug at this moment too so the production runs until september 25 2022 there's 7 30 p.m show times and there's also 2 30 p.m weekend matinees and uh, this is at the Red Sandcastle Theater, again, put on by Real Canaan Theater Company. And as always, we'll pop links of how to get tickets and where uh, Red Sandcastle Theater is in the comments below. So okay. I think at this point, I give you these spoilers with this ring, super cheesy, but we're our little symbol is going to be a spoiler ring because we're going to be spoiling the rest of the production. So at this point... A little ring is showing up. Yeah, exactly. Don't give it to the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so spoiler ring has been dropped. And we're into it. Okay. Cool. Where do you want to start? So start where both of us kind of talked about how we really enjoyed the use of the intimate space and the staging. So let's maybe unpack that, sort of break down the fourth wall for our listeners, as we will. I guess I can kick us off. Sure. Take it away. 
Yeah. So I had never been to Red Sandcastle Theater before too. So I was also a novice in the space in general. And it was Ryan and Mac who said like, well, you know, it's a black box. So the space is rearranged according to production. But how a real canon theater used this, the Red Sandcastle space, if folks are familiar, we entered the door and basically we instantly were stage left, audience right. So we just walked right in and you walk in and you look to the right, there's the play space. So it was like a rectangle, essentially. Am I describing that properly? I feel like... <laughs> you are. Something I'll add for people who have been to the space before, that is usually the most common configuration that people okay, use. Cool. It is the way that you can maximize the audience just by having them kind of elongated that way and right. maximize your playing space. But I have seen other productions actually fairly recently that have turned it perpendicular and experimented right. differently with it. But yeah, this is... If you've seen a show at Red Sandcastle before, there's a good chance you've seen it in this exact configuration with three long rows of chairs and one long playing space. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, being the kind of hungry audience member I am for this particular production, there were the three caskets that Portia and Portia's father has set up for her suitors to pick from gold, silver, or lead. There was a prop and sort of a sign for each of them layered across the first row of the seats. So the producer kind of, you know, let us know if you'd like to sit in these seats, just know you'll be responsible for kind of holding them up or giving them to the actors if they ask for them. So I was like, oh, so we'll do that. So I kind of brought Ryan and Mackenzie with me to kind of choose that. So basically, yeah, so there was the gold casket and props, the lead and the silver set up in this front row. And so we sat where the gold was. So that was kind of neat too. (laughs) I played the role of the gold casket, sure. That was cool too, because I'm like, oh, there's going to be some sort of audience participation, which is kind of cool. Not for everyone, but very very minimal, yeah. Very minimal yeah. and very easy to avoid if you don't want to. Like when you exactly. said, sure, I'll hold the gold casket. I was like, okay, I'll sit next to you, but I'm not yeah. holding the, yeah, exactly. the casket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to kind of hold up a sign when it was the suitor scenes. And and then I had, maybe I won't spoil exactly, but I had a prop that also kind of went along with it too. So I know we're in non-spoiler realm, but we'll leave it up to people to go see what each casket sort of props were. So I thought that was really cool. And then... Because we were sitting front row and because it's a short play space, when the actors were especially like sitting on the ground or coming as downstage as possible, like they were practically on their lap. And actually our actor Bridget playing Antonio and Aragon, she had a friend sitting in the front row. And when she was Aragon, she actually sat on his lap. So yeah, so there was that like kind of like very intimate not in your face as an in your face theater, but like in your face yeah. with the actors. It's kind of unavoidable. I would I would imagine it's kind of unavoidable in that space to not feel not necessarily intrusive, I guess would be the wrong word, but like not feel like you are absolutely in the space. Like, yeah, so there's that. And then a lot of the actors too would take, would play some of their scenes sitting in chairs that were off to the side, but as if in the audience. So Aaron McPherson, who plays our clown character, he did that quite often. You would, you would find him sitting same, similarly with Antonio actually, and Shylock, like there was kind of the actors would take the play space out, sitting in the audience almost as if directing their lines to whoever's on stage. So I thought, again, that was a really nice use of all-encompassing space, crushing a fourth wall, but there is one, but also 
kind of not like we were still observers. Yeah, I just thought like, you know, clearly this space was so small for any production being put on at the Red Sandcastle. I feel like there has to be some sort of creativity in staging because there is so much lack of like traditional stage space that you kind of have to break down barriers to kind of make your stuff work. And I thought it really did. Because again, I don't want to, I kind of want to volley back to you soon too, before we kind of get away from staging and stage space. But because this production was experimental with many other themes and stuff like that too, it kind of, the use of the space experimenting different non-traditional ways too, I think helped that as opposed to hindering it. Again, I don't, we won't segue yet, but like, for example, like the costuming was also quite simple and modern and needing to kind of switch back and forth with the double casting. And I think, again, this staging just kind of helped that. Yeah, go, you talk. (laughs) Yeah, so like, I don't have a lot more to add. Like, I will just say, you say it's your first time in this space. So that kind of colors your perspective. This is definitely not my first time in the space. I have produced two shows in this space, which definitely kind of provides context for how I interface with the way the space is used. And I said this also when we did our last Red Sandcastle review, which was of Two Weird Tales by Eldritch Theatre Company, where I commented that this space, I have a special fondness for it, of course, but it is working against your artistic impulses when you are trying to stage in that because... The sight lines aren't great. We were fortunate to be sitting in the front row, but if you're a couple rows back, you sometimes do miss a lot because it's like not very elevated and so close and personal. So I mentioned in that review that the puppets and the projection were the perfect way to circumvent that because in the case of the puppets, they basically truncated the staging into a little diorama that everybody could see no matter where you were positioned. And for the projections, it made everything big on the back wall so you could see it no matter how where you were. So I think I'm really appreciating when people do creative staging measures in the space that I didn't necessarily do when I was directing shows for this space because I was just like, yeah, I directed the show and this is the most affordable venue I could access at the time. But yeah, when people are kind of keeping this space in mind and thinking about, okay, this is what we're working with. How can we work against some of the hindrances that this space brings? And One of those hindrances, I know they've been renovated recently, so I don't know if this has been improved at all, but there's not a full range of backstage space here. There is one little closet that you can kind of treat as an entrance and exit, but it doesn't like lead anywhere. It's just a closet. So if the actors exit in there, they have to make their entrance back in from there. They can't run around the backstage. Or there's the other wing that leads to the dressing room downstairs and the washroom that... Yeah, it doesn't allow you to then re-enter from that other wing. So what I really loved about this kind of, you know, I'll talk more in a second about why it's so Brechtian, but this Brechtian convention Mm -hmm. of having just when characters exit, they don't leave the stage, they just sit on a chair in the periphery of the stage. It prevents the, it's like a, it's a resourceful way of dealing with the limitations of this space, even separating it from whatever it might mean artistically is just a good practical measure to not have to, foist your actors into the closet like I did because we already finished all of our blocking before we moved into the space and I was like oh well we can't actually have yeah it's not great big regrets on in terms of not using the space just not reconfiguring some of the blocking accordingly um right yeah I was gonna mention I was gonna mention the chair sit actor sitting on chair suit and of course 
I think we can crack open the Brechtian yeah, box at this point too, because you know both you and I are big fans of. Well, I'm very, I am a very big fan of Brecht. I don't want to pop that in your mouth, but but yeah. So having the actors, yeah, sitting on the chairs too. Not only is it yeah space efficiency for sure, and also an actor is an actor is an actor. Like it's instantly the audience is knowing. Oh right, these are just actors, and we are watching a show. And then because the show was so double casted, you kind of got to see on stage the brilliancy, brilliancy, is that a word? Brilliance. Brilliance, there we go. Of the actor, how the actor navigates those switches, which I don't, which a lot, like if you did have behind the curtain space to do that, you wouldn't get to see that brilliance and like as someone who has had to also do that it becomes like a second little micro play track for that actor like your costume changes or what you have to do to switch into certain characters and certain vibes that's a whole other play that's kind of going on in your brain or like a whole other you know track to kind of clock and the fact that you got to the audience kind of got to see those switches um, on stage and be witness to sometimes the chaos and like for example Kitty Lackey Lakey apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing your name who played our Shylock and Lorenzo the amount of shoe switching she had to do because Shylock had these wonderful sort of like alligator-esque stilettos but then Lorenzo just had like kind of street loafers and I remember like the stage management brain in me is like, oh God, how's she going to like switch between? And she did, but we just saw her switching it. And sometimes she'd be saying her lines as she's putting on the shoes. I'm like, that's really freaking cool. And then similarly with our actor, Freya Scary DeSano, again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name, switching between Nerissa and Jessica, there's literal times when she like sat down as Jessica and instantly became Nerissa and started, you know, stripping off the skirt of Jessica and putting on the track jacket of Narissa. So, and it was effortless. Like, I mean, and it looked like it wasn't a packaged deal. Like, oh, look at this, you know, like a similar, like a Cinderella moment where her dress gets sucked up by the tree and she's all of a sudden in like a wonderful gown. Like, no, we're seeing them change their costumes, but it was like messy effortlessness that just really worked, you know? Yeah. I'm going to let you talk more about like, I kind of just like brought us into like, a bit of double casting costume wise. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Like, so the, just to get back to the periphery of the chairs there, like this is something that Brecht himself actually did in quite a mm-hmm. few of his productions, most famously in his production of Antigone that he did, but yeah, where you just have the actor sitting and like, you know, when they're not on stage, they're still on stage but they're not acting they're not in character and like brecht even had like them like eating a sandwich or just like chatting to each other and like here in this production i didn't see a sandwich at any point but they all had water bottles and they're just taking their sip like it is very much you know still being on stage but not being in the actual like playing space and making this border clear and it was really interesting yeah like you said in these costume change moments because like whenever you have double casting that's requiring an additional layer of suspension of disbelief that you know all theater requires suspension of disbelief and it's part of the contract of play going that we understand this but it's 
yeah, when you have two characters playing the same, that just adds this extra layer of, I have to know that, oh, wait. And especially in a play like this, where characters go in disguise, and when, mm-hmm. you know, when Portia and Nerissa show up as the doctor and his clerk at in the courtroom scene, you have to understand that, okay, well, I've already seen these people play different characters, but I have to know that this is them as Portia and Nerissa disguised as these characters, which is established in one of the earlier scenes, that that's their plan, but it's it could be clumsy or clumsily handled sometimes, like if not done great. So having this convention of this changing on stage really, ele- it holds the audience's hand through the fact that these characters are changing in a way that just like going off stage, putting on a costume, like, and now I'm this person mm-hmm. would also work. It works for no lack of plays, but it's, you know, it's, it's giving the audience this little wink and a nudge of like we both know that this is the same character as or the same actor but different character so why should we waste time going off stage and pretending otherwise the Mm -hmm. play itself is able to do that for us and what i thought was the most beautiful moment of this is at the very end when so i guess some background on this the double casting was really well done in terms of certain like minor characters were cut, but of the cast we had, they did mm-hmm. such a great job of doubling it in a way that nobody, you know, had to ever talk to themselves or that we had like, you know, two characters interacting that are played by the same people, which is very hard to do with like large cast Shakespeare plays done with a cast of, what is it, seven actors in this one? Um, one yeah. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, I, and I was very impressed because if you remember when we did that Zoom reading of Merchant all those years ago, where yeah, our then artistic director Will Bartley decided on the double casting, and it was a mess. Like, and we were kind of like laughing and having fun with the mess of it all in there. But like, yeah, characters changed like on a dime mid conversation. Like, and we had like a decent like at least like twelve people I think in that Zoom room, and it was still like so complicated and convoluted about who was playing who and talking to whom when. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for like, just like a silly, you know, no rehearsal Zoom reading like that, that was fine. But for this production, I was instantly impressed at how well the double casting was managed, like, and just like dramaturgically thought through. Mm-hmm. And then at the very last moment after I've been having this thought the whole time, <laughs> Jessica and Narissa need to be on stage at the same time. The first and only instance in this entire production where that's been the case. So what happens is that Lorenzo comes on stage, sees Narissa, and be like, oh, hi, Jessica, like, here's my, you know, take my arm, here's my partner, and like, no, 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 I'm Narissa, like, oh, like, this hasn't (laughs) happened yet. So then our clown comes in, hastily puts on Jessica's costume, and now, okay, I'm playing Jessica now just for the sake of this one final scene. So like, and that's, it's just augmented the comedy in such a good way that, plays into the fact that the audience is aware of these doublings, these costume changes. You know, we're able to suspend our disbelief because we're not being asked to suspend it very (laughs) vigorously. So, and yeah, and the fact that we were able to have that really funny moment at the end is the payoff of what had hitherto been a very impressive allocation of roles, I just thought was really fun. Yeah, and I think it also, it again bleeds into, in Christopher's director note of like, this production kind of being an experimentation from the forefront and it's like allowing and telling our audience like hey what you're gonna see is us experimenting with this text this version 
these people, we're not saying it's right. Like this is the right experiment. This is the formula, package it up, call it a day. It's like, we're just playing and popping it on stage for, you know, people to come see, people to laugh, people to have an opinion, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's, that's just bedded right when it's bedded right into the costume changes, the, you know, the switching of characters on the nose. It's just, again, it's like, Hey, remember, like, we're all in this space with you too. Like we're just humans telling a story and it's, you know, changing our voice when we get to another character in a storybook, like, you know, it's, so yeah, I definitely think so. I guess this is a wonderful bleed into kind of how I think we can go back to talking more about the double casting too, but just because you mentioned the clown. So Aaron McPherson played our clown and also listed as playing Solano and Duke, but I was under the impression, like almost instantly you get the vibe that, and this is where I thought it was a start, like brilliant is you're like, oh, this is awesome. Because to me, every clown character in Shakespeare, right, they provide the comic relief. Usually they're like the tip of the iceberg of the B plot and a lot of Shakespeare's, right? But also what some people, it's usually present in the subtext of someone performing a clown. But for folks who haven't been in a rehearsal space with like sort of table working the clown, a lot of the times the clown is behind the curtain, the smartest person in the play or the all knowing, the person who's all knowing in the play, the person who is almost like this omniscient force that is quite literally sometimes in the know that this is a play and this in, and in part of their dialogue, they are stripping away the like idea that, you know, this is a play when, you know, it's, I'm kind of rambling, but like, The clown should be the smartest person in the play, should be all-knowing, and be this versatile, malleable person, because honestly, it's the most human person, right? Like, they can be the funniest in one moment, and then they can say a line that is with so much depth and, like, wise beyond your years information. And so the fact that right off the bat, you're seeing Aaron, who plays the clown in this production, have like every which way of physicality, like levels, we're talking like animalistic vibes, we're talking very human, very grounded, but then like sporadic and all over the map. And then mixed with like, his voice was going back and forth on a scale of like super high pitched and like really down and guttural. And so the fact that already he's sort of mechanically showing us that, and then you're instantly like, oh my God, he's doubled as so many different players as so many different characters, more so than like Lancelot Gobo in the OG production would be, right? So I was just like, uh, honestly, like that character alone had me on the edge of the seat. Cause I was like, okay, where is he gonna come from? How's he gonna come in? Cause like he was coming in like on his hands and feet a lot of the times, or he'd be running in or- oh, he was jumping. Yeah, yeah. And then in the moments where there was like intimacy built in, you were even more so like entranced and hypnotized. Cause you're like this person who was just bouncing off the walls is now so stoic and holy moly, like uh, my heart was breaking. Like I didn't get emotional in this production much, but the times I did, it was every time the clown was on stage. So like shout out to Aaron. I think he did like an, like talk about like experimentation and being thrown like, okay, 
you're all of these characters and you're all of these vibes. And this is kind of the way we're doing the scene and going about that. And I thought he just was a real master of what was cooked out for the clown for this production. Yeah. But yeah. More thoughts on the clown. Like, Go for uh, it. Yeah. Well, you summed up so much of what I was thinking. Yeah. Like it is just like, yeah, very common, like not so much in Shakespeare, like in the text proper, because clowns usually just show up for a brief interlude to just interact like, oh, things have gotten kind of heavy. So I'm here to lighten the mood. Like uh, that's very much and like I am often the smartest person on stage or I have this kind of foolish wisdom to me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they aren't necessarily used very extensively. Like, whereas what I think you're describing as what you observed with Aaron's performance here is something com- a lot more. Commedia dell'arte. Yeah, like yeah. in Commedia dell'arte or even like Panto, like pantomime yeah. tradition, which this sort of like MC white-faced clown as it's often referred to in like a lot of these theatrical traditions and contexts of the person who is the overseer of the piece. And because they're the clown, they can be like an onstage, our town-esque stage manager who's kind right. of controlling the action. And of course, they're going to be the one that, oh, when we've miscalculated the double casting and we need a Jessica on stage stat, of course, he's going to be the one to like jump up and put his hair down, put on a skirt and be like, I'm Jessica now. Like, uh, right. uh, and we, you know, it would be equally funny. And if some, if a different person did that, like fill in that role just because they were on hand, but it just works so well as the clown because, you know, that feels like his function. You're the funny guy. You're the one who was talking into a banana as a phone to do, to communicate some exposition for a character that we cut that you otherwise would have been talking to. So, so yeah, like, he, he really, and, and then he peeled and ate the banana. So you then yeah. the audience are left with like, was it a phone? Was he just talking into a banana? Yeah. Like I, the semiotics of this are just marvelous. And so, <laughs> and so, yeah, like I love that. And yeah, like you were talking about the emotional moments of the clown, like something that I think you can definitely read into the text, but I've never really given it much thought or prominence is Jessica's relationship to Lancelot, who I've always called Lancelot Gobo. They pronounced it Lancelot Job in this production. I don't know which one's correct. I don't know if I, I said Gobo as well, but it, yeah. It has an O at the end in most versions of the text. And I like the G-O-B Job pronunciation, like Will Arnett's character in Arrested Development. And I think like right. it has funny biblical connotations about this character's lot in life. But yeah, like I'll just keep saying the clown to not be embarrassed mm-hmm. about my pronunciation differing <laughs> from this productions. But yeah, like the Jessica's relationship to him, that they are both under Shylock's thumb, living in this house. He's like her only friend and they played up a romantic chemistry and tension between these two characters in this production that, you know, then she instantly gets courted by Lorenzo and basically forgets about him. But like, you know, you kind of have this sad beating heart of this like Tarzan hand thing that they were doing together earlier. And like, yeah, it's a definitely like an emotional high for me in this production was that moment one that I wasn't expecting to have any strong feelings about whatsoever so yeah to me too at that moment to hit on the nose of like it was almost like satirizing like this couple would never exist and can't exist but like honestly at the end of the show I was like Lancelot and Jessica were the couple I was rooting for I'm like you guys like yeah. You know, he doesn't get to be with her in the end, but he gets to be her. That's ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what's funny is I and I don't know if this is intentional or maybe I'm reading too far into this, but the way he he really stereotyped Jessica, like he had on the skirt, his hip was popped, and he actually like 
was twirling imaginary hair and smacking like gum in his mouth. And I'm like, Freya who played Narissa didn't do that. But I wonder if that's Lancelot's jab back of being like, oh, of course I'll play Jessica because she played me and watch me like, you know. Hey, that's funny. Yeah, you know like, what I mean? And it, like, And it's interesting because seeing Freya play both Narissa and Jessica, she definitely did, not to the extent that Aaron was doing it in the final scene, but she did emphasize like a femininity performance kind of mm-hmm. for Jessica that we didn't see. Narissa was very like eye rolly, wearing the tracksuit, kind yeah. of, uh, you know, one of the guys sort of. But whereas, yeah, Jessica was very like, oh no, what will my mother say? Like, and so there was already this heightened performance of, you know, stereotypical femininity. So that when, yeah, when Aaron stepped into that role at the end, obviously he dialed it up to 11, but it, mm-hmm. it, it still felt like, oh yeah, like she's playing that extra role we know she is because we've seen her do otherwise. So well, of course he's going to do the similar. Mm-hmm. And you know what I kind of enjoy too, and it's been a while since I've like read the text too, but I kind of liked in the scenes we do get of Lorenzo and Jessica, like Jessica, Freya's Jessica didn't really seem into Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. Certainly more aloof than usual. Like, well, yeah. even like the facial gestures, like when Lorenzo was kind of sitting on her lap, like it wasn't like Jessica was also stroking Lorenzo's head and looking yeah. up at the stars too. It was like, okay, you're laying on my lap and we're speaking poetry yeah. to each other. And so like, and it wasn't fully like, oh God, this girl's totally not into this guy. But there was a little bit of like, hmm, maybe she's, loving that Lorenzo is kind of her way out of like this household. But maybe Lorenzo isn't who Jessica really wants to be with. And that to me is a powerful sort of take on the text too, because the times that I have read it or been in a room where the production is, Jessica can really be like, like sort of fairy-esque, like very doty, very like, of course I'm going to rebel my father. And of course I'm going like kind of, Disney princess-esque. So I kind of liked like like the original, like OG Disney princess-esque. I kind of liked, no, no. I kind of liked that this Jessica had a little bit more agency of self. I think a lot of the times she's just kind of like a side plot filler character. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I think to jump on this, like I think you're absolutely right. Like the way it was being played in this production if she could choose any suitor she wanted, she would choose our clown because they clearly have this relationship, but that wouldn't get her out of her father's house or mother's house in this version. That wouldn't yeah. get her the freedom she wants, whereas this person has to come from the outside to sweep her off her feet and get out of there and eventually, through dubious legal means, get all of Shylock's money. Right. Um, and yeah, so I, I do think, yeah, you're very astute of you to pick up that, yeah, this there isn't really the chemistry between the, these two characters that end up together that we saw with the clown. And yeah. Very, well, very even well even played. talking and, and also like unpacking Lorenzo a little bit more, like we see the we see Lorenzo through their relationship, but then also Portia and Narissa doing the secret exchange with Lorenzo, right? If Lorenzo hold down the fort, we're going to go save the dudes at court. You could tell through Portia and Narissa in this iteration, like, Lorenzo seemed like a bit of a, almost like a clinger or like a, like goody two shoes, a brown noser or some, something that is making the other characters feel a bit standoffish because even Portia and Arissa were like, Lorenzo, Lorenzo, we'll see more like, you know, and that was really cool too, because 
I just feel like we saw a lot of who Lorenzo is in this production through other characters, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, okay, we've talked a lot about Freya doubling Nerissa and Jessica. So, and we've mentioned a lot that a lot of our characters in this iteration were double cast. So I'm just going to go through the list to let folks know who is double cast. And then we can maybe unpack that a little bit more. So as I said, Aaron McPherson played our clown at Solano and Duke. Bridget Ori played Antonio and Aragon. Again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your names. Alicia or Alessia Giancola played Portia. We talked about Freya, Scara Diasano playing Nerissa and Jessica. Hadley Abrams played Bassanio. Kitty Lackey played Shylock and Lorenzo. And Roberto Ercoli played Gratiano. Cecilia, which is this iteration's Morocco. We'll talk about that yeah. in a minute. <laughs> yeah. And Tubal also, Roberto had three characters there. So I just listed everyone. Not everyone is obviously doubled, but those that were. So Bridget, Aaron, Kitty, and Roberto, we haven't talked about them yet. Do we want to unpack yeah. those sort of pairings? Like only, the only two that were doubled were Hadley as Bassanio yeah. and Alicia as Portia. That, yeah. like, so those two, I guess, just in the logistics of it all. Portia already has this kind of like unofficial doubling by playing Balthazar, the young doctor lawyer. Like so that's fun. And yeah, I guess it just made sense to keep Bassanio, who is in the play a fair bit, you know, separate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I I thought the doubling was like really great, really well done. And every one of them did such a great job of distinguishing their characters with very minimal costume changes and was all just in terms of performance and posture and voice and personality. Like one of my absolute favorites was Bridget, who is for the most part just Antonio throughout the production, but then becomes one of Portia's suitors here, the Prince of Aragon, who well, we will talk more about the princes and in relation to the cultural elements of this play, but just I love this like posh British kind of like had like a feather boa. Like it was just so hilariously cartoonish and so different from the way she was playing Antonio. Yeah. earlier like and that i that was the most like i laughed in this entire production which is that sequence and you know such yeah. a stellar performer i also noticed in the program note that she's a dialect coach yes Bridget. Yeah. so so like yeah it makes sense that of course she's gonna do like a funny over-the-top character when she seemed like pretty straightforward approach to her antonio so i only get one other character in this thing of course i'm gonna go to town and ham it up real big nice yeah <laughs> Anyone you want to talk about in particular with the double Yeah, yeah. sure. I loved, I mean, I loved all of it. I think it, like just as like a blanket statement, everyone slayed their their multiple yeah. roles. I, Roberto go weaving between Gratiano, Cecilia, and Tubal. Like mo- mostly he's Gratiano, but he like really played him as like this like Italian kind of like Jersey Shore jock boy's boy kind of thing with like just, again, everything was like, so interesting in this production because everything was like so cartoonish and stereotyped in moments, but like in the most minimalist way, if that can even, if you can even like comprehend that, like, I don't know, like it, there was, I was always like on my like seat of, are they going too far? Or no, they're not. No, they're just like doing the character. So, cause even with the Gratiano was quite like, and, and our Cecilia too was quite cartoony but like i knew why it had to be in certain moments right like graziano is basanio's hype boy like he is the hype squad basically of the original text like so 
the way that Roberto chose to kind of embody that it was really clever, I, I found. And I was smiling behind my mask the whole time when he was acting. Another thing, just before I volley it back to you too, Kitty doubling Shylock and Lorenzo. I thought that, honestly, in my opinion, of all of the doubling, what would have been the most difficult to weave between just because a lot of like back-to-back scenes and also Kitty Kitty Shylock has an accent and Lorenzo doesn't. So there's that kind of shift. And also with, yeah, with the shoes changing and the subtle costume changes too. I felt like that one would have been the most challenging to navigate. And I thought she did a really good job of that. Yeah. Sorry, did you yeah. want to speak? Yeah. So I have thoughts about Roberto's performance and the very big Italianness of it all that I think is best saved for a conversation I know we're going to have in a bit. So I will put a pin in that. But yeah, for Kitty's Shylock and Lorenzo, yeah, I thought that was really great and well done. And something I liked about how both of those characters were female characters in this version. It was Shylock as Jessica's mother. They refer to her as a her. And same with Lorenzo, that this is a, yeah, a same-sex relationship between Lorenzo and Jessica in here. And these are two characters that I would never think to double like they feel like oh they're in the b plot in direct conflict with each other but i i can't remember are they ever on stage together in the original like this if they are then those like scenes were very elegantly trimmed out but yeah maybe they never are but they're both fighting with each other at separate times to control jessica they're the two men in this case two women who are you know, wanting to, you know, have a strong influence on Jessica's life. So having them played by the same person is like a very interesting way to thematize that through just a single body. So I thought that was really well done. And yeah, she obviously did a great job of distinguishing these characters just through voice, posture and costume that really yeah, made it never unclear which one was. So I think that's a good segue point too. you mentioned that Shylock in this production is their actual pronouns are changed to she, her and our Shylock is a woman. So this this whole production does shakes things up when it comes to gendered casting. So Ryan, you want to kind of kick us off of that and kind of your yeah, like, you and I were actually just talking about this before we started recording, like, is gender blind an accurate way of describing what this production does? And I feel like there's different ways of defining that term, different schools of thought or what constitutes blindness? Are we ever blind to things like race and gender? Is that like accurate? And but what I think was really interesting is some of the characters were kept as they are in the text, regardless of who alternatively gendered person was playing them, and some were changed accordingly. And then we have Asanio in particular, who according to the they's and the them's in Hadley's program note, I'm going to assume is a non-binary performer. Please correct me if otherwise. Yeah, having Bassanio, I believe, uh, trying to remember what we saw on stage, that characters occasionally referred to Bassanio as he, him, and sometimes as she, her, I think. I could be Mm -hmm. misremembering some parts. So it's taking, you know, a non-binary performer who doesn't specifically conform to one or the other and that just treating it as gender, not quite gender neutral, but gender fluid, a character that sometimes the character will be referred to as he, him, sometimes she, her. And it's, I think, you know, quite an interesting way of engaging with the fact that these characters were obviously all written for specific cisgendered bodies. Well, although interestingly that all the female ones in Shakespeare's time would have been played by male cisgender bodies, but nonetheless, you know, the characters are supposed to be cisgender. And yeah, having 
you know, to think through, okay, how are we going to engage this? Are we just going to neutralize it all to the vase across the board? Or why is Antonio presumably still male, even though being played by a female performer, but Shylock and Lorenzo have been turned female? Like, what is this saying? And and a lot of the interesting things that do come about in this is the, what I guess some of the more queer relationships that emerge from this uh, subject. Like, you know, we've discussed how Lorenzo and Jessica's relationship just becomes like explicitly lesbian in this context that if they're both female. And I really did like this is something that, you know, a lot of people read into the character of Antonio has this, you know, deep love and longing for Bassanio. Like the play starts with, I don't know why I'm so sad. And then just never really gets closure on that situation. Uh, we're in the spoiler ring zone here. The yep. final image that we're left with in this production after, you know, that tension really is ratcheted up is just the two of them on, like on stage together, far apart. Bassanio's married now. Antonio's still alone, survived without losing the pound of flesh, but is very much exactly where he started at the beginning of the play. And it's just them separate underneath pink and blue lighting, very like you know queer lighting aesthetic that like yeah. you know and yeah just them like kind of looking at each other and this just feeling of like oh what could have been but you know maybe in a different life and like certainly in the courtroom scene like that was played into and with Portia watching and being quite furious at the and that's yeah. and what I really liked about that is in so many productions of this it's not really clear why Portia and Narissa do the whole ring thing just to screw with these guys, basically. Like, you could see it as, like, a test of loyalty, but then they don't really seem that perturbed when, at the very end, they reveal the joke and, like, ah, we're cool. Whereas I felt like the romantic chemistry between Bassanio and Antonio that is exhibited in the courtroom while Portia is watching, you know, in disguise, really made it clear why she felt the need to test, do this test of loyalty to like really see like, okay, yeah, I'm mad at my husband of like five minutes for already, right. you know, kiss romantically kissing the forehead of someone else, like regardless right. of gender identity. Like, so yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I gave you that ring let's see how much it means to you. And then we're still kind of something that I've always thought was a bit of a flaw with this play is that you know, it ends with, don't worry, I was the doctor, I have the ring. No, no worries, we cool with like the implications yes. of that is like, okay, but that was a test of loyalty and you failed. Yeah. Are we cool? I don't know. Like, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I've been rambling. What, do you have thoughts no, on No, like I, I agree with you completely. And I, it was kind of refreshing that like halfway through the, even not even halfway through, like five minutes, 10 minutes through, like there was just a fluidity of gender across, sweeping across the stage. And it really allowed me to kind of just focus on like the story and the experimentation of this production too. Like, that these like actors on stage putting on a show, I didn't have to, I didn't ever feel like I'm like, oh, okay. So then this person ends up with this person who is a woman. And what does that mean? Like I, at first I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting to kind of unpack why this person is casted as such or et cetera. But then like five minutes in, I was like, oh no, it's just a bunch of bodies on stage telling this Shakespeare classic that, you know, and, and I liked that it wasn't I think a lot of times you see if there is a change in gender, it's done to like a specific relationship for a specific reason. And the production is really kind of depending on that reason. And 
really making sure that this is in the forefront and why is it at the forefront and we're doing something different and this is why we're doing something different. And because it wasn't just sequestered to one coupling, the different characters, whether we're talking about the princes, whether we're talking about Bassanio, whether we're talking about Jessica and Lorenzo, like each of these vignettes of the production had something that was non-traditional presented and it just again heightened the entire piece as opposed to just like a certain theme or a certain character if that makes sense like yeah so I actually really appreciated that across the board things were fluid and sometimes quite literally to the certain pronouns that were used or not used yeah yeah that's kind of what I have to say. You basically said everything else. So yeah, <laughs> there's a theme there. We're catching each other on the coattails of a fully adorned suit already, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. On the subject of big changes and identities of characters, there's one big one that we keep hinting at that we're going to talk about that we haven't yet because we didn't want to, you know, front load the whole discussion with this, but I think it's time to unpack Shylock and talk mm-hmm. about the cultural identities of characters and I guess what we can call for lack of a better word the Jewish question that surrounds this play. So this production has scrubbed Judaism from the piece. Shylock is not a Jew. They yeah, they are presented as an immigrant and that is, you know, in the big you know, I knew that this kind of like you know, de-emphasizing of Jewishness was going to be a thing in this production. There was discourse about this on social media in the lead up to us seeing the play. And my first thought was like, I'm open to seeing how this works. But my question is like, well, you have to change the script if you're going to do that. Like, because, you know, one of the most famous lines in this play is because I am a Jew. Mm -hmm. So if you're, yeah, I was very curious, like, well, what are they going to change it to? Are they just going to be like, because I am a person like or is it like do correct you want and like that could have worked too I'm not saying not like it probably sounded facetious like in my saying that but uh yeah so what they went with instead is Shylock is an immigrant and in Kitty's portrayal of the character I believe she is of Hungarian descent or maybe even mm-hmm. born in Hungary like and she emphasized this Eastern European accent that wasn't specifically playing into any Jewish stereotypes but just emphasizing the outsiderness of this character. And I alluded at the beginning to the fact that it is because of the anti-Semitic-ness in this play. I won't say the play itself is necessarily anti-Semitic, although we'll get to some of that in a second. It's because of, yeah, the way anti-Semitism is framed within this play and permeates throughout the play, and particularly as it surrounds Shylock that people do get bashful about doing this play or talking about this play. I remember my very first exposure to the concept of this play, not even reading it or seeing it, was my grade 11 English teacher, Mr. Schaefer. Shout out to Mr. Schaefer, great teacher. (laughs) Yeah, he said that like when he was an undergrad studying English, he had took a course where they read every single Shakespeare play. And in the week, and so every single week, they would unpack like so much complicated themes. And then the week that they did Merchant of Venice, the professor just talked, used that week as an excuse to talk about the conventions of staging in Elizabethan theater and said nothing about the play in particular. And then next week, move on to, I don't know, Cymbeline or whatever, but yeah. detailed discussion about Cymbeline. But like, and yeah, Mr. Schaefer, who based on his name, yes, he is Jewish. You know, he was, he was like scratching his head at like, is this how shy his, you know, professor, presumably not Jewish, but I don't know, his professor was, mm-hmm. but 
broaching the anti-Semitism in this play, then like they just weren't going to talk about the play at all. And sorry, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot. No, no, keep going. Like, no, no, this is this is all very interesting information. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so I guess the question kind of then becomes and, you know, based on Christopher's program note, like the director note here, this this is a question that I think this production isn't just saying is like a, you know, a close case. The question of what do we do with this play? Should we do Merchant? How do we do it? Give in a like for lack of a better word, post Holocaust context, because that's, you know, the last sort of, you know, it is the moment in human history where the world learned to sympathize with Jews, basically, and has kind of had this like big ripple effect in culture, a ripple effect that didn't like exist in Shakespeare's time. So there's a, like a lot of different opinions about this. I have mine. I don't certainly don't wish to speak for the entire Jewish community. That's I'm just one person. But yeah, a lot of people feel that if you are going to do this play, and in fact should do this play, you really should lean into the Judaism, the anti-Semitism, make the whole play about that. A whole play that really isn't about that. Shylock is just one character. So many people, like, I've seen it happen on multiple episodes of Jeopardy, where (laughs) there's a question where the correct answer is, who is Antonio? But because, you know, most the one thing that most people know about this play is Shylock, the Jew. They assume he is the merchant of Venice of the title and then buzz in wrong and say, who is Shylock? And get the Jeopardy question wrong because Shylock isn't the merchant of Venice. He's a moneylender. He's not, you know, this isn't a play about him, as the title indicates. It's debatable whether or not it's even a play about Antonio, but that's a different story. But, you know, the way we've built this discourse of anti-Semitism and trying to unpack the controversial nature of this play as a mythology that surrounds the play, we tend to lose sight of how sequestered Shylock is and how not central to the plot he is. And at the end of the day, Shylock's the villain. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I think why I'm not, it's not that I'm not sold on the idea that we need to lean into the anti-Semitism, make the play about that, make it about Jewishness, but but let's just get in my mind where I sort of sit with this a few things straight. First of all, Shakespeare probably never met a Jew. Like that is historically probably the case. Jews were not allowed to live in England during Shakespeare's lifetime. The Edict of Expulsion went into place in 1290, centuries before Shakespeare's existed. Said all of the Jews get out of England is what that was. You know, it predates the Spanish Inquisition by a couple hundred years, by the way, like, and it wasn't lifted until 1657, like almost half a century after Shakespeare died. And, uh, you know, ironically enough, it was lifted by Oliver Cromwell, who tends to be the villain in our theater history. But, you know, that may be one good thing he did. I don't know. But yeah, so during Shakespeare's whole lifetime, Jews were not allowed to live in England. Doesn't mean none did. And maybe they lived in secrecy. Hard to kind of say. But if Shakespeare never left England and we don't have any documentary proof that he did, although there are the lost years in his biography in which maybe he traveled, he seems to have this extensive knowledge of the world that some scholars say he clearly just got from travel books. Others say that those lost years were spent traveling. We don't really know, but based on what we do know about his life, there's a good chance he never left England. And if so, there's a very good chance he never met a Jew. But he's already not basing this idea of, you know, this sympathetic Jewish character on, like, people he knew, people he has sympathy for. He's basing it on 
the stereotypes of this kind of character that he finds in books or that just circulate in the world in a culture where nobody knows any Jews personally. And mm -hmm. they just have these ideas of Jews as, you know, one, the people responsible for killing Christ, because that's, you know, just because the name of the guy who betrayed him in the circle of mostly Jewish people happens to sound a lot like Judaism. So there you go. That's the villain. And mm -hmm. yeah, the people who, you know, will not be saved at the revelation or at the rapture, basically. That's the image of Judaism that these characters have. And what's complicated about this is that Shylock is the villain. He is 100% the antagonist of the story. And if not for one very powerful monologue, there would be no discussion about ooh, what a nuanced and complicated portrayal of Judaism and a Jewish character and otherness he would just be this like grotesque Jewish stereotype of a bad person who craves the Christian flesh, basically, not in like a, you know, gustatory mm -hmm. sense, but in like a, you know, I hate Christians and I just want to cut their flesh out because I am evil. And like, that is basically who Shylock is in most of the story. And it's, but then in the middle of it, you have this really like interesting monologue about, you know, because Shakespeare. Spear was just a very good writer who had empathy for all of his villains that he was able to kind of, you know, unpack, okay, but like, why is this character like this? And, you know, does he have a point if he is cut? Does he not bleed, et cetera, et cetera? Like, and that's great. But outside of that one monologue of the play, isn't really an interrogation of that idea. Now you as an actor can really take that like, okay, the entire psychology of this character, the key to is it, it is in this monologue. And then I'm going to, you know, really inform and really sympathize and, you know, the production seems behind me, like that when I get converted to Christianity and lose all my money in the end, that is my tragedy. And it is like, really, whereas in reality, that was the happy end of the comedy. That, yeah, the bad person has been punished. He's not even Jewish anymore. Isn't that great? One less Jew in our community, like, and he doesn't even have his money, so he can't even wield his Jewish authority on us through the money, like, and that's like a thing. This is, you know, this, I have actually handy here that this is the program for Stratford's production of The Miser, which we just saw last week. And The Miser is interesting, it's sort of, and the program note kind of talks about this, of this sort of trilogy of early modern plays, unofficial trilogy about, you know, non-Jews writing about miserly characters. And we have, you know, Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, and Moliere's The Miser. And we have this kind of triptych of, in Marlowe's version, this Jew is just the worst. We hate him, go die, and then he does, and we're all happy because he was just awful. <laughs> Shakespeare's version is basically just that, not as awful. It's a comedy instead of a tragedy. And we get this one nuanced monologue where we kind of unpack the psychology of this character, but he's still just like a less awful version of Barbarous from Marlowe's play. And then you get the... Miser, like uh, several decades later, by Moliere, which is playing upon a lot of Jewish stereotypes, but doesn't explicitly make the character Jewish. And that's kind of Moliere maybe being tongue-in-cheek about how this is, you know, anyone You're saying anyone can be miserly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like, uh, you know, don't just make it about the Jews. Maybe a lot of his audience would have left that theater being like, oh man, that Jew. Like, maybe mm -hmm. because that's, again, the images they would have had in their head of like what that kind of person is like, but... Yeah, it's not explicitly foundational to that text in the way it is in Marlowe's or Shakespeare's versions. So we kind of see Merchant of Venice as this like weird middle example of he's still explicitly the villain. He is punished and it's treated as the happy ending of the comedy. 
But what do we do with this monologue where we're invited to empathize with this person, even if the play then promptly forgets about that? Most people would say, well, we make it a tragedy. It is Shylock's story. And, but like, any way you slice it for me, I feel like this is not a flattering portrayal. I have here also, hey, Death and King's Horseman, which we saw at Stratford the same day. Anthony Santiago, who played the King's Horseman in this production, said in a program note in this, that it might surprise Stratford's audience. I'm paraphrasing here because I don't want to find the page right now, but it might surprise Stratford's audience to know that Shakespeare's more Othello was not always on my like dream bucket list of roles to play that as a black actor, maybe that isn't like the be all and end all of, ah, yes, I have made it as a classical actor, that this is a role that I always want to play. Whereas when he read Death and King's Horseman and then connected with this character of Elise in this like truly African tragic hero, that like this is something much more like interesting and culturally resonant that I could get my teeth into. And if you remember when we did our panel on Othello, the Stratford production, and we had the lovely David Collins on, you know, he did talk about how, yeah, Othello is fundamentally a racist portrait of how the white Christian majority would see racial otherness. And, you know, it is essentially a parable about don't let that black man marry your daughter because this is what's going to happen. So the fact that we have turned Othello into like a, this is the be all end all role that every black Shakespearean actor wants to play because who else are you going to play? Things have changed now that we've kind of embraced more colorblind casting or color conscious casting where you know, Andre Sills can play Coriolanus and it's not really about like, oh, but how is how does this make sense to the Roman general? Like, it, it doesn't matter anymore. And I think, yes, we live in a post-Hamilton age and we've moved beyond that and like, it's good. But for a very long time, well, even before that, Othello was always just played by a white actor in blackface and that it took time for black actors to even reclaim that role because it feels like one for them. And then now we've just moved into like, you know, black actors can play anyone, so it's fine. And um now, it's interesting. Sorry, I'm going all over the map here. It's okay. So uh, did you want to chime in or say anything? Like, I want to give you a turn, like? Honestly, you are being extremely articulate and peppering in so many, like, supportive reasons. I am just holding the space and okay. agree in agreeance with what's happening. So keep, okay. keep going. <laughs> okay. Why do I bring up Othello is, I guess, the question here. Well, I bring up Othello because of one of the big questions about Shylock in particular is that if you're going to do Merchant of Venice, it kind of an argument, whether you agree with it or not, is that Shylock should be played by a Jewish actor. And I, I understand the reasoning for this, but it's a little different than why we kind of, I think, insist that a Black actor should play Othello or play Aaron in Titus Andronicus or play the Prince of Morocco in uh, this particular play, which we'll talk about in a minute. So yeah, there's been a lot of argument about like, you know, when a non-Jewish actor plays Shylock, whether it's Scott Wentworth at the Stratford Festival or Al Pacino in the movie version, like, is this, you know, what is their lived experience that can they even relate to this character? Like, does maybe being the otherness of being an Italian-American translate to the otherness of being a Jew in Italy? Like, and that's like an interesting question that we could unpack. The reason why, well, a couple reasons why I'm not personally in agreement that only Jews should play Shylock is unlike Othello, it's not like Jews for the most part pass as white, like, and or are white even, like that's a different like semantic kind of conversation, but 
nobody's ever told or up until maybe you know in certainly recent memory nobody tells a jewish actor you can't play antonio he's a christian or you can't play romeo because you're jewish like that just doesn't happen maybe at one point in history it did and certainly in various points of history when Jews were like ghettoized and otherwise and weren't even like interacting with Christian society in any kind of meaningful way that would have happened. But like nowadays on stages, it's just there is no kind of like otherness that is, you know, in North America, at least put against Jewish actors that prohibit them from playing certain roles. As I just said, with black actors, we are moving back to the point where like it's, you know, no longer being treated as a big issue. But hey, the Little Mermaid trailer just came out this week, and a lot of terrible assholes are having a problem with the fact that we have a black actress playing a character who they remember being white in a cartoon from 1989. So, so, but yeah, clearly this is still a problem for a lot of people that black actors and other actors of color, BIPOC folks, don't have the same freedom to inhabit any role they want that's why so many of them treat othello or aaron as these like you know bucket list roles because for a lot of them that's the ceiling of what they're allowed to play or treated as being allowed to play so i i have a problem with white actors playing othello because there's so few roles that these you know actors that black actors are allowed to play or treated as being allowed to play that you're taking that opportunity away from them I don't feel like a non-Jewish actor playing Shylock takes an opportunity away from a Jewish actor because a Jewish actor could be playing Antonio or Bassanio in the same production. And I will just say, even from my personal experience, when we did our little fun Zoom reading of Merchant, I Will was doing the casting for that, and I sent Will like a text and said, please don't make me Shylock as the kind of only Jew in that Zoom room, or I believe only Jew in that Zoom room. Like... I don't want to be Shylock. I don't like Shylock very much. And I did also have an experience in a French class that I took in high school in grade nine, where we read, I don't know why we read this. It was the screenplay for the Louis Malle film. We didn't watch the movie. We just read the screenplay, which was weird. And at the time, I didn't have the most sophisticated sense of what's a play, what's a novel, what's a screenplay. So I just thought we were reading a play, basically. But no, it was the screenplay to this like French movie about about Christian boring school that was hiding a few Jewish children during the Holocaust, based on Louis Mayall's experience of being in a boring school like that when he was younger. And yeah, my my English, sorry, my, my French teacher, this was in French class, where we were like kind of doing it like it was a play and we were reading the roles aloud and designated roles. And my French teacher made me, the kid, the only Jew in my very like goyish Oakville high school, <laughs> made me read for one of the kids that was revealed to be Jewish at the end. And like, I get it. I get why he made that decision. But like, I felt uncomfortable about it. As like, I, I feel like in his mind, he's like, ah, yes, you will relate to this most. And I don't want like to give it to someone else or like, but I one can't relate to the Holocaust experience. I didn't live through it. My grandfather lived through it, but mm -hmm. that's not really my experience to claim. And yeah, like I, when it was revealed later in the screenplay that this character is Jewish, I kind of like, it was like, oh, okay. Hmm. hmm. Like it's, well, it's, but it is very kind of, it's different for different reasons, but it is like we're doing, we're reading Othello in grade 11 English class and you, one black student in the room, you will be our Othello. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? Like, please <laughs> read all about your experiences. And like, it's... Yeah. Yeah, these things aren't transferable. And it is a kind of racism to sort of pigeonhole people into these kinds of roles if they don't explicitly want that. And I'm not telling anyone they should or shouldn't want it, but... Mm-hmm. So I've said a lot right now. Yeah. Let's go back to how Shylock is. Sorry, do you want to chime in? Well, so I was actually, I think you're about to go on this vein too, of how, so Kitty Lackey plays our Shylock. And in the program, she identifies as a Hungarian-Canadian actor. And as Ryan had already mentioned too, the pronouns of this Shylock are changed to she, her. She is addressed as the mother of Jessica. So it is a woman. And as Ryan already mentioned too, Kitty does give her an, an... sort of generalized Eastern European accent to emphasize her potential otherness too. Even you said you went on pack to Roberto having Italian accents throughout as well. But but then something I guess I do want want to unpack kind of spiraling off of the wonderful micro lecture that you just did. Like, and I'm not saying that like, oh, this guy just lectured. No, I think it was very, very informative. And again, is a bit of a catalyst to what I'm about to say too, is getting into kind of coming into this with the back of our mind too, in Christopher's director note, explicitly saying, we aren't saying that we're getting this right, this production. We are explicitly saying that this is an experimentation of text and movement, basically. And asking the audience the question and having the audience stew on these questions of, does this work? Does this gender fluidity, does this excising of the Judaism work? If you are to put on the production of The Merchant of Venice in 2022, in North America, in specifically Toronto, and post-pandemic. Like, there's a lot of variables floating around a production that already is faced with a lot of variables, right? So the fact that is honest and open and a vulnerable statement from Lucas at the top of the pro, again, I think it is, so just having that in the back of the mind of asking, so with Kitty Shylock, I've already said, is referred to she, her, has an accent. But in the actual text, they also excise the word Jew and replace it with immigrant. It isn't assumed or somewhere like a, a scene isn't piped in that you're like, she is an immigrant. But then in the monologue, she's still saying like, you know, can a Jew not bleed? Uh, like it's actually an immigrant not bleed. So I guess this is also just to kind of prod your literary manager slash dramaturgical background, Ryan, what does it mean when we're, because we're manipulating, especially in this production too, we're manipulating the text from a pronoun perspective. So what happens now when we're actually changing words and changing something that has had an existence as a particular identity and does make that monologue the way it is because like, yeah. So I guess substituting it because again, just before you unpack, like I'm of the, I get maybe, and maybe this is wrong and I'm not saying this is right per se, but even if Kitty were to still say Jew, I guess the question to you is why, I guess, why do you think they, they felt the need to change that? I guess I'll, I'll throw that to you. So, Yeah. A lot of thoughts about this. They're not necessarily coherent. So apologies if I get into another Mm -hmm. big ramble. Dramaturgically, to replace it with immigrant. 
I think both does and does not work. And I'm not, that's the, the does not side of that doesn't fault this production for, ah, you shouldn't have done this, or it's just mm-hmm. like, and clearly based on the monologue I just made, I have a lot of like hangups about this play, things I think through complicated feelings that are all just entirely my own. And I don't want to just project that out of like, therefore it's yeah. good to do this play, bad to do this play, good to approach it this way, bad to, like, it's just me thinking through, but Something that I think about and why I kind of belabor the point of Shylock is the villain and that one monologue doesn't change that is, well, a couple things, but I'll start with why I think it doesn't work to change it to immigrant. And it is for that reason. It's because at the end of the day, you're making a comment about otherness here, but it, in my mind, doesn't work because that other character will be the villain no matter what you call them or what identity label or cultural label you attach to them. So, like, why... Okay, sorry, I'm going to flip-flop between why it does or doesn't work, but I think it does work because I'm of the mind that Jews don't own this play. Speaking as a Jew, just one Jew, not the entire Jewish community, but this is not a play written by a Jew. It's but not played by someone who knew Jews, as I kind of explained why that's likely the case. And it's not someone who, you know, despite his great capacity for empathy as exhibited in that one monologue, I don't think it's written by someone who has a lot of empathy for Jews. Like, and that's not a slight against Shakespeare or hashtag cancel Shakespeare or even cancel this play. But it's, it's a, yeah, this is a grotesque anti-Semitic caricature. It is. It is the villain of the play, and we are meant to triumph at his conversion and bankruptcy and failure at the end. If you turn that into an immigrant, it's still a grotesque portrait. It is still the villain, and it's still someone that we are meant to applaud when they lose. Now, Mm -hmm. what informs the sort of why it's maybe seems like it should be Jewish specifically is because the grotesque stereotypes that are attached are ones that have been historically attached to Judaism, specifically the miserliness, the money grubbing, the, 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 yeah, kind of all the avarice of it all. And there's, you know, those are negative stereotypes and there is historical precedent for why those stereotypes come about Jews as like, you know, a subjugated population for so much of human history, living in the diaspora after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, you know, never being allowed to like claim citizenship rights wherever they lived, always being ghettoized and othered. And in the historical moment in which this play was written, kind of in this weird transitionary period with the collapse of feudalism and slowly evolving into what we would call modern capitalism, this other community and the members thereof were finally able to, through savvy and gumption, accumulate power through dollars and cents, through monetary wealth. That was power that was previously not afforded in, you know, feudalism and other economic systems where it was just what your land and title and, you know, what you owned is all through hereditary that Jews could not have any power in that system. But then once money entered the picture, supposedly under early capitalism, in theory, the great equalizer, that if you have money, you have power, and it doesn't matter who you are, it seems very democratic in theory. Jews figured out ways, like, you know, and this isn't me being like anti-Semitic, like Jews and their money, like this is just, you know, Jews found ways to accumulate wealth through ways that, you know, just through savvy and cunning and intellect, 
that allowed them to have power that previously wasn't afforded to them. And then, because they knew what it was like to not have that power, they held onto it very tightly. Because, of course you would, if your wealth and your power is contingent on this thing you own, and you know the taste of not having power, you're going to hold on to it because you've worked so hard to get it. Mm -hmm. So that creates this stereotype that Marlowe and Shakespeare and even Moliere to a certain extent are all playing upon that is foundational to this character. The image we have of immigrants in particular, which is a very like plastic word that means a lot of different things, typically isn't associated with that image, that caricature of somebody who loves money and will be vindictive to you about lending and also requiring Christian blood is like a whole anti-Semitic like blood libel thing that like we don't need to get into here, but that's also mm -hmm. part of the, the, the pound of flesh and all of that imagery there. This character is very much otherized on those grounds. So I feel like, you know, it's understandable why people would take issue with you know, just taking out the Judaism when this is so clearly a portrait of a Christian's idea of a Jew. And mm -hmm. just saying it's not about Judaism, it's about otherness. Well, it is kind of still about Judaism, but does it have to be? And that's why I think it can work. And this production, like, I think it, for the most part, did work because they, like, de-emphasized the Jewish parts that historically are obviously there and, you know, you can't escape from entirely just in terms of the plot mechanics of this play. But trying to say that it's not doesn't have to be about Judaism, at the end of the day, if we want to relate to this play, we just anyone, not just Jews, want to relate to the tragedy of this character, it can be otherness of anyone. It could be an immigrant, and that's fine. Now, why I think maybe that still doesn't work is because we, you know, progressive-minded people living in Toronto in 2020, are obviously inclined to sympathize with the immigrant, and not think that their otherness is not justified just based on the fact that they're not from here, just in the same way that we would be primed to sympathize with a Jew. Like, oh, that's not right. Like, six mm -hmm. million of them died in the Holocaust. How dare you be mean to him is the kind of post-Holocaust interpretation of this play. But I, so at the end of the day, we're primed to sympathize with this character, but then the play is not set up in a way that really lets you sympathize with this character, or you really have to turn it into the tragedy of Shylock to really make that happen. Mm -hmm. productions like doing that but it doesn't really you know you have to bend the text to your will for that whereas just doing the text doesn't mm -hmm. do that and like i applauded at the beginning that this production did a good job of making this play a comedy but you know we're still stuck with that thorn of poor shylock and no matter yeah. what how much no matter how much of an asshole shylock is and in every version shylock is pretty much an asshole you know if we're going to lean into the otherness of any kind, we're going to have this cognitive dissonance that I don't feel like this production reconciled with its change. And I don't really feel like any production does a good job of reconciling. Like, yeah. So, and that's, yeah, again, not like, therefore don't do this play. Just, it's something to think about. Yeah. Now for Kitty's portrayal in particular, I like that a thing that I've hinted to this enough time. So yeah, now we're talking about this. I like how this production allowed and you were talking about this a moment ago too allowed the actors to bring themselves into the role yeah. and like their own communities and cultures and identities like to talk about roberto playing graciano because we've talked about this his very big bombastic i don't know why i'm doing the hands well i know why i'm doing but yeah yeah i should maybe i shouldn't do the hands because i'm not italian but like his 
with the second he's starting, because he's in the very first scene doing this weird Italian stereotype accent that is simultaneously Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Marlon Brando all in a blender together. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just all of the actors from Godfathers Part 1 and 2, just they're all in there. So, and like, because it was the first scene, and the other actors on stage weren't doing this voice, my first thought was like, oh my god, like, I, I saw that initially just in my brain, thinking like, he's like the annoying guy in an improv class who's like, this character's Italian, I do the voice. Yeah. But like, you know, when no one else is doing that, I thought like, okay, he is not on the same page as the rest of them of what this production is. And the director didn't have a talk. Oh, about really? it. Like, <laughs> But that was my first thought when it started. Because mm. like, he was just doing his own thing that the others were not. But then as the production went on, and we were introduced to Shylock, and we see that portrayal, and we've seen him play other characters in different contexts, I understood that like, okay, he, you know, if I can infer correctly from, you know, his first and last name, I'm assuming he, the actor is Italian. And it's allowing him to decide, does he want to play the stereotype? Um, and if this is a play about stereotypes and otherness, like, it's interesting that, like, he's representing Italianness, i.e. the locale that the play is set in, but he's the only one who's talking like an Italian. So, and, like, him as the actor, I kind of, did I find it a bit much sometimes? Yes. Did I find it funny? Also, yes. Did I, do I think like it's his right as an Italian performer to decide that's how he wants to play it, that he wants to like lean into those stereotypes and like comment on that? Yeah, that's like, I think his right. And that's why where productions with non-Jewish Shylocks maybe air is by keeping the character Jewish and then having this non-Jewish person play Jewish stereotypes is essentially not as bad as Black in my mind, but it is reproducing mm -hmm. a lot of the similar kind of ideas of a person from the hegemonic majority playing someone from a minority, emphasizing those stereotypes for laughs. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, a Jewish Shylock doesn't have the same problem because they are agreeing with, like, I will play this stereotype, I, I will bring my own Jewish experience into it, and that's fine. So by making Kitty not be a Jewish Shylock by being, you know, an Eastern European immigrant Shylock, it's part of the same logic as she's bringing her own experience of otherness or some kind of idea of what otherness means to her through her own cultural identity into the role in a way that, you know, non-Jewish actors playing Jewish Shylocks doesn't. And I think that's why it works. And it universalizes the idea of otherness on here. Now that universality is a tricky subject, I, this is going so long, I'm so like, it's okay, it's okay. Universality is a tricky Thor because Jews have very specific struggles throughout history, but a lot of people also do. And it's the question then becomes like, if this is a very specifically Jewish portrayal of this character and dealing with specific Jewish struggles, like, is it inappropriate to make it about otherness in general and universality as opposed to particularity? And the thing that I think of in this is it's, well, the Diary of Anne Frank is what I think of, actually, because I've been reading a lot about it lately for my dissertation, but I'm reading a lot of, like, you know, scholarship about the diary itself, the play adaptation by 
Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who are two non-Jewish playwrights, a married couple who wrote the adaptation. And there was like a lot of controversy at the time. There was a Jewish playwright named Meyer Levin, who, you know, was in communication with Otto Frank, was one of the earliest champions of the diary who wanted to write the stage adaptation. But, you know, a lot of complicated politics that people have written multiple full books on that I don't need to get into here. But short version is they didn't go with Meyer Levin's version because they felt that it was too Jewish, too particularly Jewish. And they went with this goyish couple who wrote the screenplay for The Thin Man and It's a Wonderful Life because they felt that they were the ones who can turn this into a universal, i.e. American fable that anyone could relate to. And that's what they did. And a lot of the Jewish like Holocaust historians and literary critics and scholars who I'm reading right now hate the stage adaptation for precisely this reason that it has turned this authentically Jewish document, this story, this person, and turned her basically into a goyish American girl. And that the cherry picking of the things to make it an optimistic, you know, life affirming story that anyone could relate to, not a doom and gloom story that only Jews could relate to. Like the big thing, like the final line of the play, which is from Anne Frank's final diary entry is like, you know, I believe paraphrasing, I don't have it on the top of my head, but like, yeah, I believe there's, you know, people are really good at heart uh, in spite of everything that, you know, by making that the last line of the play, the note we go home on, it's really framing it as like, ah, yes leaving an optimism where in that same diary entry, there's also a lot much darker stuff about her situation mm -hmm. that like we could, and throughout the diary. And like a lot of these scholars are like, Oh, the cherry picking that's happening here. They just want to tell a story that, you know, overshadows and essentially erases the Holocaust and the Jewishness of it all. Like, so now I actually love the play, <laughs> the diary of Anne Frank. I think it's really well-written. It's weird. It's actually super weird. And like, I, if on a different episode, I would talk all about that. But, but I read all of these scholars basically repeating the same point as each other about how bad this play is because of how not Jewish it is or not Holocaust specific it is. And there's like one line in particular that they're also always harping on about near the end when they're about to get arrested and says to Peter, you know, today it's the Jews, tomorrow it's someone else, everybody suffers in time, and these scholars are furious, like, but it's not about everyone suffering, it's about the Jews suffering in this particular context. And that's true for Anne Frank, but it's also not a lot of not Jews died in the Holocaust and were sent to concentration camps. The Holocaust was this huge event where 11 million people died, 6 million of which were Jews, the mm -hmm. largest percentage. But like, it's not, it wasn't just a Jewish tragedy. And there were, you know, it, it, I feel like these scholars have this like weird protectiveness about the Holocaust belongs to Jews, suffering belongs to Jews, and Frank belongs to Jews, Shylock belongs to Jews. When, you know, we, I think we do better as humans if we do try to make these stories universal, to not try to lay claim on specific types of suffering to try to make people empath empathize with our suffering. And like we, I, I just don't feel like it's productive to try to claim these things as our own and feel like nobody else but us is allowed to be. These things can't be universal because they happen to us. And like, sorry, one more thing. And I think we have to, another play that I'm writing about in my dissertation, actually in the same chapter that I'm talking about all the Anne Frank stuff is A Nanking Winter by Marjorie Chan, you know, shout out Marjorie Chan, Toronto colleague, where there's a big argument in that play about, you know, the, the main character is sort of like a stand in for Iris Chang, who wrote the book, The Rape of Nanking. 
And the subtitle of that book, the actual book that exists in the world, is The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II. And it was controversial at the time in the 90s to name this book about the Holocaust, but not about the Shoah, the destruction of European Jewry, as we often associate with the Holocaust, and saying that, you know, these couple months in, you know, this one city of China was proportionate and equal in scale to the devastation of the Holocaust. And so in the play by Marjorie Chan, there's a large discussion in it about, is it appropriate to use that word? Like, does that, you know, is this a comparable tragedy? Is it like fair to, does it, you know, diminish the suffering of Jews to say that the suffering of people in Nanking is the same? And, you know, the play has interesting ways of negotiating this argument, but just speaking for myself, I feel like it's more inappropriate to say that one person's suffering or one group's suffering is worse or devastating or deserves to be called a holocaust and someone else's doesn't simply because of scale or more accurately the race of the people being killed think holocaust-like events genocide if you prefer to use a more yeah. like, neutral term for it happens everywhere all the time and yeah to say that you know, there's a big discussion or like a lot of academic discussions about comparative genocide and the uniqueness of the Holocaust. Is the Holocaust unique? And I, you know, as speaking of someone who is a descendant of survivors and people who were killed in it, I got to say no, because it's unique for some reasons, just like every historical event is unique for reasons. No two historical events are the same. And certainly the scale was massive in a way that had never been seen before or since. But also, you know, look at what was happening in Stalin's gulags at the time. Look what was happening in Nanking at the time. Look what happened in Serbia and Bosnia, like a little while later mm -hmm. in Rwanda. Like to say, if we're having these sort of semantic arguments about what is or is not a Holocaust, we're not actually talking about people are suffering and dying. What does it matter what we call it? So, yeah, I guess this is just a long way of saying... <laughs> Who can a non-Jew play Shylock? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I lost the thread of this so many times. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Honestly, it was all great. It was all great. And I think necessary layers to kind of yeah. so, talk about this. I Because yeah. I, I think it's not just this production that is doing it or is, I'm not even saying is, I'm saying is, I think there's the bigger question of doing the Merchant of Venice in general, right? I think a lot of companies for a variety of reasons nowadays are like, should we do this? Do we do this? Can we still do this? How can we do this? But even just, and then taking from macro to micro, Shylock specific, right? Of like, how do we do this character? How do we approach this character? Why this character? Why now? Right? So I think both of those are loaded questions and I think do require a lot of discussion of how, who, why, when. And so all of the information that you just said is, I think, needed and contributing to those discussions that are always going to be ongoing. And I think that isn't that also what theater and the origin of theater provokes, right, is discussion and opinion. And, you know, maybe this worked for someone, maybe it didn't work for others. You know, maybe you walk away with a huge smile on your face, you walk away with a sat with a frown on your face, right? Like, Theater is meant to provoke. Theater is meant to evoke. And so, yeah. So this is also just me saying all that you said contributes yeah. to the discussion of, so, in general. Yeah. To so, I guess cap it all off, like in terms of 
these are the questions that I feel like this production is raising. Like, if we look yeah. at Christopher Lucas's director's note, like, I like that he doesn't present it like, ooh, yes, this is how we should do Merchant of Venice. This is his attempt or their attempt at, like, doing this piece. And, you know, the fact that I'm having all these thoughts, maybe they didn't all need to come out on camera in what is ostensibly a review of this production. But I do think that, yeah. If we are going to keep engaging with this play, these are the things to think through and yeah. question. And like, I I have, I guess, very little patience for dismissiveness of experimentation and approaches like what this production did, because it's like people who are mad at Marcel Duchamp for putting a urinal in an art gallery and calling it art, who are like, that's not art, like, and therefore I hate it when realistically that reaction is exactly the point of this isn't saying that this is a beautiful work of art it's saying by putting this in an art gallery i am prompting you to question what is art and like right. so to just like yeah i don't want to like you know if i've had this like very like unpacky nuanced sort of approach like parsing all these different thoughts that's my way of saying like let's engage with all of the facets of this question not yeah. just did it work? Did it not? And well, and yeah. providing more historic, like more in-depth historical and literary backing to sort of help explore these questions. I think that's super interesting. I would love to know if in their table work, they went as far or in some sort of direction as we went today. Maybe so, maybe not, but I, it certainly doesn't hurt, right? Like the more knowledge and backing to, to support any side of anything is is important in my opinion so and and like i'll say yeah. hey real cane in theater christopher carrie hello yeah if you thought you guys follow us on instagram shoot us a dm if you want to keep these conversations going yeah Comment on this episode like we don't want our response to be the end of the discussion yeah you are absolutely raising interesting points through this production and let's keep it going like yeah like yeah the production is never a complete in case statement of its own and neither is a review like these are just prompts mm -hmm. for further discourse and we can you know unpack these layers further and yeah maybe even have a round table about something like this in the future foreshadowing that we've done many times and never seem to pay off <laughs> right but awesome i think that's a wonderful conclusion to putting a pin in this discussion now and closing off the episode so again just to bring up that this production of The Merchant of Venice by Real Canaan Theatre is happening at Red Sand Castle now until September 25th. They have a 7.30 p.m. showtime and 2.30 p.m. weekend matinee. So get on out there and see the show for yourself and create your own, you know, discussion points and opinions. Although Great. by the time and you finished listening to this, the production <laughs> has already come and gone because this was so long. So no, sorry. it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. And so we'll put all information links of where you can get your tickets down below, as I mentioned earlier. And so at this point, Ryan, do you want to give us any plugs for the socials? Uh, yeah, like I'm on Instagram. I don't really use it. But if anyone wants to, <laughs> I guess I'll just do like, yeah, it's Ryan Brockfish, just my name, all one word at the Instagram if you want to send me a message in response to anything I said here like go for it I guess you know to that specific prompt that I gave to Christopher and Carrie I would say yeah you're already following Cup of Hemlock just DM the company if you prefer that's at COH Theater on Facebook Instagram and Twitter 
mm-hmm. if you're watching this on YouTube, like share and subscribe. Same with the podcast stuff. You know, you're, you've been on the internet before. It's fine. Yeah. If you'd like to follow my artist Instagram account, it's Jillian.Robinson96. And I'll be posting, you know, covers of songs, upcoming projects, the huge, if you want to keep up with me. And Ryan already, yeah, put forth our COHT social handles on YouTube, where you get your podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, all the things, follow Cup of Hemlock Theater and continue these uh, wonderful discussions. So this is where we'll leave you. Big old cheers. And this was fun. Yes. Stay safe. And we will catch you next time.